This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Today we're going to look at James 1, 5 through 8, but I want to read the verses that we covered last week, beginning uh, at verse 2. So we're going to look at 2 to 4, and then today's verses 5 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today, and we, from the very beginning, ask you that you would give us wisdom, even as the passage talks about today. Lord, we want to apply the text before even opening up the text this morning and ask you to speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would speak with clarity and encouragement today to us, Lord, that you would help us, that you would strengthen us. And Lord, I pray for any of us in the room that may be double-minded today, that you would give us a single mind of focus upon you today. Lord, we pray that the grace, your grace, the grace of God in Jesus Christ would be on display today, Lord, that those who don't know you in our midst might come to know you, and those who do know you would be refreshed in you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we covered verses 2 through 4, which really talk about trials, the inevitable difficulties of life, which we all face, which shouldn't be a surprise, but actually James, from the beginning of this letter, makes it clear that they should be an expectation, in fact. He says, when you encourage, when you encounter, rather, when you meet trials of all kinds, there's an expectation that in this life we will have trouble, Scripture says, and James is writing to people that are suffering, they are enduring a great trial of persecution, and he doesn't just address that trial. He says that when you meet trials of all kinds, you are to meet them with joy, which is really uh, the exact opposite of what any of us would naturally do. He says to meet trials with joy because you want to look ahead and see what the process of the trials are, that God brings trials, allows trials in our lives for a specific purpose. And the specific purpose, James says, is that those trials can test our faith, that those trials can build endurance in us, and that through endurance, God makes us complete. God matures us. The word is translated perfect here. It means that we may be mature. And so he, in essence, says, meet trials with joy because the pressing on through those trials will help you mature, and that's a good thing. We all want to grow up and be godly and be mature, be Christ-like. 
So he says, face trials with joy because you grow up when you press on. As you press on, you will mature. And when you have that vision, you can face trials with joy, he says. Now, in verse 5, the next passage, well, back up, verse 4, he says, let steadfastness or perseverance or endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, here's the connection, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom... So the goal of trials is to mature us, to trust God through them, that we may be matured, that we will lack nothing. But if you lack wisdom, so this word lack is the connection. If you lack wisdom, anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So James moves from trials to wisdom. And he links them together through this word lack. But they're thematically connected. This this issue of trials and wisdom Various trials, difficult trials, and now he links it to asking for wisdom. What is the link between trials and wisdom? Well, we often have, I think, what's an, an unbiblical view uh, of wisdom. It, it might be a cultural view, but not, a, not necessarily a biblical view of wisdom. We often think of wisdom as knowledge, that someone who is knowledgeable is wise. Or, uh, and this would be closer to the biblical example, even someone who is discerning or someone who has insight. We view them as a, as a wise person, someone who's smart. So we equate wisdom with smarts oftentimes. But in the Bible, the idea of wisdom is much fuller than just intelligence or, or, or just smarts, just information and, and just knowledge. It's much more than that. In the Bible, wisdom is applied knowledge. You see, in the Bible, wisdom has to do with navigating life, with walking through life and making choices that honor God. Douglas Moo in his commentary on James says, Wisdom is the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. The will of God is the scripture. So wisdom is the ability to discern, to understand God's will for us, and then to put that into practice, to walk that out. It's understanding that is applied to living. One author said wisdom is practical righteousness for everyday living. Practical righteousness for everyday living. And because wisdom entails not only knowledge, but also application of knowledge or truth, there's a moral component to wisdom. Often in our culture's understanding of wisdom, there's no moral component whatsoever. It's just you know stuff and you're wise. But in the scripture, there is a moral component to wisdom because it involves our thoughts, our words, our actions, our conduct. Psalm 111.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, According to the Bible, the way the the Scripture uh, understands wisdom, according to the Bible, uh, wisdom includes this fear of the Lord. As a matter of fact, our view of God is the beginning of our wisdom, that you can't even have wisdom if you don't have an appropriate understanding of God. And an appropriate response to God, which is one of awe, one of reverence, one of fear. That is the starting place for wisdom. So people that don't know Christ, who may have a lot of knowledge and may have even street smarts, 
and discernment, and maybe by common grace, even act appropriately with some of that. But ultimately, without a Godward view, there is no real wisdom. That's what the idea of wisdom is in the Scripture. Wisdom stems from uh, honoring God and acting in a way that is appropriately in reference to who he is. Wisdom is a practice that stems from fear of the Lord. So it is understanding truth, it is understanding God, and it is applying that knowledge into daily living. That's wisdom. And so with that understanding of wisdom, and not merely just intelligence or knowledge, we see how it applies to trials. Wisdom's vital for walking through trials. And that's why James naturally transitions from this, this difficulty of trials to walking through trials in a God-honoring way. So if you lack wisdom, ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach. To the, to the first readers, as you are in a trial, in your, as you are in a difficult circumstance, you need wisdom to face that circumstance. And so... Do we? What kind of wisdom? Well, I think I'd start with just saying wisdom to believe verses 2 through 4 and to keep that in view. I mean, it takes incredible wisdom to face trials and difficulties in life and to see them with a redemptive purpose. That is, to face a trial, to meet an unexpected trial and say, I see this as a means of growing up in God, that as I trust him, as I lean upon him, that he's going to purify my faith, that he's going to grant me perseverance, and that ultimately I will be more godly, I'll be more dependent, I'll know the Savior better, I'll reflect the character of Christ through my life better. This is a good thing for me. That takes uncommon wisdom. Just to have that at any moment. I mean, because in the midst of a trial, we don't see that. In the midst of a trial, oftentimes, without godly wisdom, we will just say, enough! This is crazy! Why am I going through this? Trials just sneak up. They surprise us. They just hit us. And you know what? Trials don't only... I find trials come in clumps. Have you experienced that? It's not like I have this one trial, and then I walk through this one trial, get it all wrapped up, and then five or ten years later, another one comes along the way. It doesn't work that way. There are difficulties that face us constantly, and, and they're repeated. And sometimes they're the same difficulty in our face over and over, and it's hard to have a right perspective about that. We, we just had a um, Thursday and Friday, we hosted, I, we meant to tell you this last week and totally forgot about it, but we hosted a regional pastors and wives gathering here in Frisco. So uh, the various churches that we work with, that I work with and serve, all of their pastors and wives came to Frisco. We spent a couple days here doing training, teaching, uh, relationship building, hanging out, having fun. We did a lot of wonderful things um, in that time. So we had like 22 folks that were here and we had some folks in our church serving them at a closing dinner, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful time together. But during that time, one of the pastors, a friend of mine, was telling a story about how he just had a repeated trial, and it was, I just thought this was a great metaphor for life because of what he described. He's like, this is the way life really works. He described himself as driving in his town, and uh, he was just driving along, and he was looking for a store. And so as he's looking for the store, he's not really paying attention. And he said that he looked up, and he was in the middle of an intersection, and he saw a red light. And as soon as he saw that, there was this impacting crash. 
because someone who had a green light was obeying the law and driving through the intersection, and someone who was not obeying the law was in the middle of the intersection, namely said pastor who's telling this story. And the other guy's airbags go off. He said his didn't, but it was, it was a bad wreck. The other person wasn't hurt. He wasn't hurt. That was the good news. But his van was just trashed. It was just totaled, he said. So he pulled it off to the side of the road, and police showed up and wrote him a ticket. And so he lost his van. He got a ticket and called his wife, he said, and invited his wife to come pick him up. Listen, uh, I totaled the family van, and uh, so can you please come pick me up? And that's a trial. You're just not looking for it. It's very unexpected, instantaneously, um, and that's the situation. So a wrecker comes and attaches, you know, p- p- attaches his van and pulls his van off his his wrecked van, and you know he's talking with his wife. They get in a vehicle, and and so they're just going to head home um, after this tremendous trial. And he says, as he gets going down the road, he looks, and down the road there is his van, and it's on the side of the road. The van that was just towed, the van that was just towed off that he had been riding in, and they pulled over and looked at it. And what had happened was the wrecker at the next light down the street ran a red light. And a car racing through the intersection missed the wrecker and just hit his van and just crashed his van again. And now his van is pulled to the side of the road. And he said they just pulled off there. And he said the police officer is writing another ticket and just smirking. I mean, how can this happen that at one intersection your van is totaled and the next intersection it happens all over again? But is that not the way life... When he told that, I just thought, that is the way life feels. Oh, what a terrible thing has happened. I wasn't expecting this. I don't have time today to total a van. I mean, I've got things to do. There's meetings. There's stuff that needs to be accomplished. I can't be having life-threatening experiences today. I need it just to be normal, only to find that at the next intersection, the exact same thing happens again. And the car missed the wrecker altogether, just smashed his van, only caught his van. That is the way life feels. It comes in waves of difficulty. And biblical wisdom is having a perspective that understands verses 2 through 4, which says, as these various trials come one after the other, God is up to something in my life. God is working in me. God is fashioning me. God is changing me. May I persevere in him. Or how about this? How about when you're in the middle of a trial and there's multiple options, there's multiple pathways before us? We need wisdom to navigate that. I mean, there's folks in the room that are in financial, you'd say today I'm in financial trouble. I've got financial trials and I need to know which way to go, what to do, what's my next step. There's folks in the room that have health trials and you have options in front of you. What do I do? How do I deal with this? How do I find a diagnosis? How do I find a solution? How do I cope in the midst of not finding any solution to my physical trial? And you need wisdom to know which way to navigate. Some of you have, some of us have relational challenge in our life. Not only, we, we not only have financial, we not only have perhaps medical, but relational challenges and there's a breach in a relationship, and you want to be a peacemaker, you want to honor God, you want to do the godly thing, but you just don't know what to do. Because whatever you've tried's not worked. And so you're like this with someone, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member. It's like this. And you're saying, how can this get right? I don't know what to do. And you need wisdom from God because all the stuff you've tried has failed. And you need God to give you 
wisdom. See, when we face trials of all kinds, we need wisdom. And the good news of this passage, the good news of the verses we're reading this morning, is that God is eager to give wisdom to those who ask expectantly. That's the point of this passage. God is eager to give wisdom to those who ask expectantly. So I want to talk about two things under that kind of big idea. I want to talk about, first of all, asking God for wisdom. And secondly, I want to talk about trusting God for wisdom because God is eager to give wisdom to those who ask in faith and trust with expectation. Okay, look what he says. Verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. See, not only do trials stretch us and build endurance and bring maturity, trials also are meant to reveal our need for wisdom. Because the passage here really indicates, let him ask God for wisdom, that, that wisdom is something God provides. Wisdom is a gift from God. And one of the, one of the um, blessings, one of the benefits, one of the good things of, difficulty, of difficulties is that they cause us to see our own limitations. God brings difficulties in our lives, and it, it magnifies our limitations. And we come to the end of ourselves, and we see our need for wisdom. We see our need for God to help us know not just facts and knowledge, but how to apply truth in a given situation and walk wisely. See, trials that bring us to the end of ourselves, that cause us to ask God, they position us, they platform us to encounter God Almighty. And that's a benefit. Ask God for wisdom. Difficulties are meant to... The difficulties you have that you are seeking to get away from, perhaps, that you want out of your life, the hard places where you are pressed today, the very purpose of those is for you to come to the place where you say, I give up. God, help me. I don't know what to do. God, would you speak to me through your word? Would you lead me? Would you direct me? Show me how to think about this. Show me what to say. Show me how to act. Show me whether to act or to wait. That's wisdom, to know when to act and when not to act. It's one of the great benefits of difficulty, as the people in James's letter are experiencing, is that it presses us to God, to wisdom. Now, I have found in my own life that I don't always apply this verse. I don't start here, that when I lack wisdom... It's not always the case, I wish it were, but it is not that I, that I ask God as a starting place. I find it easy when I face a difficulty to go a lot of other places. Now, it may be going to God indirectly for help, but I, I find that I can go a lot of other places. I'm thinking about a particular trial uh, in my own life, a particular difficulty, a particular when you fall into various trials scenario in my life, and I, I think about my temptations with this trial, and, and how I have sought to address this trial, navigate this trial, walk through a trial in my life. And I can do things like this. Uh, I can read books. I can read books to learn about, I can read books about God to learn how to address a particular difficulty in my life, and I've done that. Uh, I, have, I have asked other people, who've walked through similar trials. What did you learn in that situation? How did you address the situation? You had a kind of a, you had a trial like I have. How, how did you address that? 
What did you do in that? I've interviewed people. I've asked people that I know close up. I've asked people that I know that live in other places. Made phone calls, written emails. I've interviewed folks. Hey, I have a trial. You kind of had a trial like that. What do you do? How do you act in that situation? I've sought counsel from my care group. I'm in the world's smallest care group. It's the Paynes, us, and the Tombrellas. And so I've asked my care group members, my pastors, who in my case happen to be the same, I've sought the counsel of leaders in my life who have responsibility to speak into my life. I've asked them. I've, uh, I, I've listened to sermons. Listened to sermons that would talk to me about God and would talk to me about faith in God to walk through difficulty. Now, everything I just mentioned um, is generally good. I mean, the Bible does say there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So getting counsel is a good thing. Reading books of truth is a good thing. Hearing biblical sermons is a good thing. Talking to Christians who are experiencing the same types of things that you are and asking for help is a good thing. But none of those are to be a substitute for God himself. God is the end. Those are means to the end. And if those become the end in themselves, there's a problem. And actually, those should be secondary. Those should be secondary. Now, God's word is primary. Reading the scripture is primary. But the counsel of others should be secondary and supplemental. They should be secondary to me going to God and beginning the process by saying, God, I need you. Hear me. Here's what can be revealed by pursuing help in our trials from a lot of different sources and running place to place, what is sometime revealed in there is, is a sort of a, a subtle idolatry that out there somewhere lies a silver bullet. And if I can just get the one key to my trial, if I can just get the one financial tip, if I can just get the one medication or treatment or supplement or whatever it is, if I can just get that one thing, If I can just talk to the one person who had the exact situation that I do, and that person can tell me exactly what they did, then I'll have my answer. Out there somewhere is hidden this answer, this solution, and it's my job just to find it, and that's not what this passage says. It doesn't say scurry about until you find the key that unlocks your problem. The passage says go to God and ask for wisdom. Now God may lead you and probably will lead you. I'm quite confident he will lead you to get counsel from folks in your care group and leaders in your life and friends who may have a common circumstance. I'm quite certain that God will encourage you to humble yourself and ask for help. I'm quite certain that God will recommend that you read stuff, and we have stuff on the back that we could recommend that address all manner of trials. But we dare not pursue those other sources without Asking God himself, God, I need you. Would you use means, but my starting place, my hope, my trust, my confidence is in you and your word, O God. If any of you lacks wisdom, it couldn't be clearer. Let him ask God. Start with God, we walk with God, we continue with God, we finish with God. And we're asking, asking, it's a continuous action verb. We're to ask and continue to ask for wisdom. And while we're going to other places, we're asking for wisdom 
all along the way. And, and I love the way he encourages us to ask. He encourages us to ask with this very inviting description of God. Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. Generously to all and it will be given to him. God is a giving God. God is a generous God. The motivation here for running to God is not only that he's the source of wisdom, but that he's eager to give you wisdom. He is generous. He is not reluctant. Now, we can say a lot of things about God. This is not all the Bible says about God, but this is always true of God. God is always generous. God is always giving. And this morning, I want to ask you, as you look at your perplexing situation, as you look at your trial, as you look at the pain that you are experiencing right now in life, um, what is your view of God in all of that? Do you see God as fundamentally a generous, gracious, giving God? He gives. I mean, the best known scripture in all the Bible is probably either the 23rd Psalm or John 3.16. What does John 3.16 say? That God so loves the world, loved the world, that he gave. The very nature of God is to give. He gave his own son to demonstrate this. Or how about Romans 8, a familiar passage. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? graciously give us all things. It's a broad statement, and here's a very specific application. He will give wisdom. Do you see that, or do you see God as somewhat reluctant? And do you see there's some reluctance there that you must overcome to get God to give you what you need? Then you, you have an unbiblical view of God because he stands poised and ready to give generously, and the scripture says he does that without reproach. I think the NIV says he does that without finding fault. That means that when you come to God asking for wisdom to deal with the issues of your life, he is not saying, again? I mean, what did you do with the wisdom I gave you last time? I mean, how many times are you going to come to me and ask for wisdom? Are you kidding me? I mean, God is not going to say, I gave you a brain, use it. (laughs) It's not what he's going to say. He is giving graciously, generously. He is not finding fault. He is not reproaching you for coming. He is commanding you to come. Let him ask God. Listen to this picture that Kent Hughes wrote. He says about this verse, God is like a pitcher tilted toward his children just waiting to pour wisdom over the trial-parched landscape of their lives. If they will but ask. God is like a pitcher of wisdom. It's just an illustration. A pitcher of wisdom ready to be poured out on your life which is dry and barren and trial parched. Your landscape of your life feels trial parched, brittle, cracked, broken, dry, thirsty, and there is a pitcher of wisdom ready to come as a deluge if you'll but ask, if you'll but see him as generous. If you'll but pursue him, consider his character. It's a promise. It's a promise. 
if you're not a Christian, I don't know how you walk through the difficulties of life. And I say that not looking down upon you, but I say that with the deepest compassion. Because if you are not a Christian, not only do you have no orderly way to think about and process the difficulties of your life. You don't see them as redemptive. You don't see God's hand in them. There's nothing hopeful about them. Not only is that the case, but you have no source of help. Oh, well, there's sources of help. You can go down to the bookstore and there's, there's a section called self-help. And there is tons of stuff there available for you. And, and by God's common grace, there is some truth there. But there's not ultimate truth there. You don't have a source. You scurry around saying, what do I do? But the difference for the Christian, not because the Christian is better, but because the Christian has tasted the gift of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, is there is a God that stands ready to give wisdom, to pour out wisdom, to help, to aid. And, and, and this is not simplistic. I'm, I'm not saying that it means that all of a sudden the problem goes away. It doesn't, it doesn't say come to God and all your problems will vanish. It doesn't, this is not a genie in a bottle verse. But he is saying that in the midst of your difficulty, you can see the way to walk, how to think, how to behave, even when it's hard. If you don't know the Lord, turn to the Lord as Savior today. He will forgive your sins. Trust in Jesus, the one who died for your sins. And he will forgive your sins. He will grant you a new life. And he will grant you, in the, in the truest sense, a purpose for your life. And that is a purpose not only for the good times, but for the bad times as well. A God who stands ready to give wisdom. See, God is eager to give wisdom to those who ask expectantly. So often we're just gathering up all other means of help when God stands ready to help. All other promises are meaningless. Yesterday, after a long period of lots of stuff going on, I was preparing this message, and this was a microwaved message, not a crockpot message. Each week I try to crockpot the whole week, and this was, I just could not get to it. I just couldn't because I had this, I spoke like four times at this retreat thing I told you about. So, Uh, this was having to come together at the very end. And so I was in the office drinking almost illegal amounts of coffee and and basically looking at these notes and saying, this is just pathetic. And so then I looked at the shelf and there was in our office, Rob and Pete, I don't know if you know about this, but in our office has appeared this very, very heavy, large bag of chocolate. And uh, so it was there. And I've got a really bad message, and I'm really tired, so I'm just going to eat chocolate, okay? Now, that's really not what the Bible would recommend, but so I just start eating chocolates. And I'm just thinking, you know, if this message stinks, at least I'm going to enjoy eating chocolates and drinking coffee. And again, this is not the way to approach difficulties. I mean, be glad. It wasn't liquor. It was chocolate, okay? It was chocolate and coffee. So I get this one particular chocolate, and I'm eating them, and you open them up individually, and they have a promise in them. And I'm right at this point. I'm working on this message, and it's called Promises, and I'm reading them, and like the first promise was embrace life. I look at that, I, I, I don't even know what that means. It's not helping me at all, <laughs> but I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, this is pathetic, but I was curious enough, I better eat another chocolate and see what they have to say. <laughs> and like the next one was take five minutes for yourself today. And I'm thinking, well, I'll, I'll have another chocolate to that, and so <laughs> I just grabbed another one. It was like, Today is special. And after I, you know, went through these and and had about 45 chocolate verses in front of me, 
I just said, is this not, I was on this part of the message, I said, is this not actually the Lord speaking to me in my weakness and stupidity? I mean, is this not really all that's out there to offer besides God? What is embrace life? I don't even know, how do you hug life? I don't even know what that means. It's meaningless. And if we do not go for, to God for wisdom, we can go a many other places, including caffeine and food. We can go a lot of different places in our lives, and it's all meaningless. It's drivel. There's nothing that is substantive and hopeful outside of God, yet that God, the God of the universe, your Savior, Jesus Christ, stands ready to pour wisdom. Why go anywhere else? Why not take Him up on this promise, which is a promise to give us something we need? Why not run to God? And not the meaningless platitudes and the short-term temporary answers, supposed answers to our problems. When the God of all wisdom stands ready, ask of God. And secondly, trust God for wisdom. Not only ask God for wisdom, but trust God for wisdom. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's not merely asking, but it's, merely ex- it's also asking and expecting an answer. The New Living Translation paraphrases that. Be sure that you really expect him to answer. I think that's a good paraphrase. If anyone likes wisdom, let him ask of God. But let him ask in faith. Be sure that you really expect him to answer. Continue to ask and ask in faith. His answer may not be instantaneous, by the way. Uh, again, this isn't magical. You pray a prayer, and like the chocolates or the, or the fortune cookie, you open it up, and there's the answer. Wow. Wish I'd known about this deal early. God's, God's not manipulated. God's not controllable. So it may not be instantaneous, and it may not be in the way that we necessarily expect that he will bring wisdom, but he will bring wisdom predominantly through his scripture, And sometimes applying his scripture in our circumstances. He can speak through circumstances and other people in various ways. But ask in faith, trusting God alone. And he says that there should be no doubting. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now, I know when you read that, you think, okay, I'm disqualified. Because I've never, I mean, there's always some doubt. And, And that's just normal and natural. I mean, of course, there is some doubt in our lives. I mean, There's someone who comes to Jesus needing help for his son, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, we all live that way. So there are ways that we vacillate to some degree from trust and then leaning on ourselves, leaning on God, leaning on ourselves. That's that's just having an active flesh and battling indwelling sin and being human. That happens. What's happening here, he's talking about, is something much stronger. It's a, it's a question of one's devotion or one's loyalty to God. When he says, let there be no doubting, look what he goes on to say. It's not just like, I wonder if God's going to do that. It's, it's significant. Verse 8, he says, this person who doubts is a double-minded man. A double-minded man. It literally means double-souled. It's a person who has two souls that wants to, you know, cast their soul and rest on God, but also wants to rest on something else in a significant way. It's an indecisive person. It's, it's someone who's going to trust actually in opposite directions. Double-minded, double-souled. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust something else as well. And Jesus says you can't do this. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money, for instance, he says. And that's what's going on here. So 
Ask in faith. Don't be a person who is believing in God, sort of, but then also has this whole other agenda that you pursue as well. Look at, in chapter 4, James says it this way. Chapter 4, verse 4, he says the same thing. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, you can't make God your friend and the world your friend. So he's not talking about subtle failings and, you know, occasional waffling and, and some, a degree of uncertainty. He's not talking about that. He's talking about somebody who says, I'm going to go for God one day. And the other way says, God who? I'm going for the world. I'm trusting in the world. I'm leaning in the world. Again, this isn't like momentary slight back and forth. This person, verse 8, is unstable in all his or her ways. So when we say not doubting, we're talking about something severe here that is two souls, double-minded, believing in two directions, trusting in two directions, unstable in all their ways. This person has not decided, do I want to follow God or the world? This person is like, he says, like a, a wave of the sea, and the wind comes and the wave blows this way, and then the wind goes that way and the wave blows that way. This is the person who says, when I'm with my Christian friends, I act sort of, and think like a Christian, at least externally. And when I'm with my friends in the world, then I act like my friends in the world. I haven't decided I'm unstable in all my ways. I have double-souled response to God. And so that person should not expect that God is going to give them the wisdom they are asking to navigate their life in difficulty because God is not acting just as someone who springs you from the trap so that you can run back and live in the world and ignore him until you're in another trap and you cry out for wisdom and he springs that trap until you run back into the world and live until you're in desperate straits again and then you cry out to God. That, that's not Christianity, you know. That's like God is your triple A card or something that, you know, you break down and you call for a tow. That's not God. God graciously will tow us. He's towed us out of all kinds of stuff. But God is one who is to be trusted as Savior and Lord and Master of our lives, even though we fail him in following him. It's talking about, is there a general direction of your, of your life that you say, I want wisdom, which is how to live and walk through this difficulty. The type of person I just described, which many of us in the room have been, some of us in the room probably are. I mean, we live, because we live in the Bible Belt, actually, we live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Because of the culture we live in, this type of person is legion. Because they're our cultural reasons and benefits to sort of identifying generally with the morality of the church and being a Sunday Christian and living however you want the other six hours, not six days, actually probably almost full seven days except for the two hours you're at church or an hour you're at church, whatever it is. It's common in our culture because there are motivating reasons to identify oneself with religion. And so, and there's a lot of religion in the background and in the culture, so people choose to identify with religion at some level, but then live a totally different way, and that is not pure religion, pure and undefiled religion, which is the theme of James's book. James's book is you must be a hearer and a doer. And ultimately, we're talking about heart direction. Double-souled doesn't mean perfect. I mean, a single-souled versus double-souled doesn't mean perfect. 
It just means I identify with Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. And the desire of my heart is to please him. And though I do things I don't want to do and I don't do some things I do want to do, Paul describes himself that way in Romans 7. Yet still, my heart motivation is to please the Lord. That kind of person can lead, lean on God and expect that he will answer. God is eager to give wisdom to those who ask expectantly. And here's the reason that the double-souled person, the, double, the two-faced person, the person heading in two different directions will never find the wisdom they're looking for, for God, from God. Here's the reason. Because wisdom is a person. Wisdom is a person, and his name is Jesus. And you either want to know Jesus, you either love Jesus, you either have been saved by Jesus, you either are grateful for Jesus, or you are not. This is what 1 Corinthians 1 says. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, Jesus is your wisdom. God has made Jesus wisdom for you. What does that mean? Well, first of all, Jesus lived wisely in your place. If you were a Christian, you were one who is trusting Jesus to be wisdom for you because you are a fool. The Bible says the person who says, uh, the, the fool says in his heart there is no God, and we are all that way. Naturally, we are saying we don't believe in God, we're not going to follow God, so we are all naturally fools. But Jesus came and lived wisely because Jesus was all knowledge and all truth, and he navigated life perfectly discerning and obeying the will of God at all times, flawlessly. So the believer in Jesus Christ has as their track record before God, has as their track record, not fool, but wise, one who followed the law because Jesus obeyed in our place. He obeyed in our place. He was ultimately wise. He chose the Father. He loved the Father. He walked with the Father. He obeyed the Father. And if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, His wisdom is accounted to your foolishness. And so God looks at your life and doesn't say, Fool! God looks at your life and says, Wise! Because this one is in my Son, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom personified. And not only did He live wisely for us, He also died as the wise one for our foolishness. See, we're all double-souled. We're all two directions. We're all tossed about. We're all unstable. None of us want to serve God and know Christ in our natural condition. And so Jesus died for our foolishness, our rebellion, our idolatry. Do you know idolatry is not only wicked, it is stupid. It is stupid. It is foolish. To trust money instead of the creator of everything is stupid. To want to have adulation and acceptance from people and not God is stupid. To care about the pleasures of this life, the momentary pleasures of illicit sex, of of having possessions now, of working your way up the corporate life, of just the kind of temporal pleasures that we can have now and not care about the pleasures of eternity is stupid. And so Jesus not only died for sin, he died for stupid idolatry. He is wise. And as we know him, we receive 
forgiveness and we receive a new life and our foolishness is redeemed and forgiven and replaced with his wisdom. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our redemption. He is our sanctification. I'm guessing we've all thought about, well, many of us have thought about what it means that he's our righteousness. We probably haven't thought much about he's our wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God is wisdom personified. God is the fount of all wisdom. God is wisdom on display. And that wisdom is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's why the double-minded person is unstable in all their ways and doesn't have wisdom because they don't have Jesus. And they don't want Jesus. And they don't love Jesus. Listen, there is purpose in the perplexing situation you face. There is purpose in the trials and the difficulties and the hurt and the sorrow and the grief. There is purpose. When you feel like someone has kicked you in the gut and you have lost your wind as you think about that trial that's in front of you, when you wake up tomorrow morning and there is maybe just a gnawing ache in the back of your soul when you think about the trial that you're thinking about, when there is a fidgety butterfly nervousness which indicates the anxiety and the worry that you carry with you over a situation in front of you, when you face those situations, when you have the uncertain, there are folks in the room that I'm sure you are uncertain if you will have a job next week, next month, or next year. When you face those kind of trials, there are some in the room who don't have a job today. When you face those difficulties, run to God and say, I need wisdom. I need wisdom to see how you're going to use this for your glory and my good. I need wisdom to believe, verses 2 through 4, that I can have joy and will have joy because I grow up as I press on. I need that, Lord. Give me wisdom. And Lord, give me wisdom to know what to do in this trial. Listen, God generously gives wisdom to those who act expectantly. He is ready to pour it out on you as you turn to him. And when you think of that, trials, well, trials aren't so bad in light of eternity. If trials lead me to know God, if trials lead me to experience and benefit from wisdom, if trials lead me to the one who is my wisdom, Jesus, then there's something good about that. Lord, help me. Lord, answer. Lord, direct. Lord, sustain. Lord, give me wisdom. That is a prayer that he will answer in his timing and in his way, but he will answer. He gives freely, so come. Come and ask. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for the truth that you are wisdom and that you grant us wisdom in the midst of our difficulties. And Lord, we are people with difficulties, many of the difficulties uh, from our own design, our own faults, and many of the difficulties that have really nothing to do with us and our responsibility but have just come upon us, have leapt out and have, have, have just sort of sprung out of nowhere. Lord, whatever the case, as, as a people who are, have difficulties and trials and tribulations and persecutions in our lives, Lord, we, we just want to come to you today. And we want to pause and we want to put down all the self-help books and all the strategies. We want to put down the treasure hunt where we're searching for the one answer, the one piece of counsel 
where we're, we're trusting that we could find the one right answer, the one testimony of someone who faced what we're facing. We put all that aside. We lay aside every idol, everything that we rely on, and we come to you and we say, you've become our wisdom. You are our wisdom. We love you, Lord Jesus. And, and we want the wisdom to know how to think about this situation and how to act in this situation. Lord, most of all, we want you. But we come running to you. We forget everything else and we come to you. And we say, meet us, Lord. We take you at your word, Lord. We want to be bold today and we want to say, though we don't deserve this, we want to take you at your word. And we want to say, God, would you pour out generous portions of wisdom, generous doses of wisdom, liberally, without finding fault and without reproach today. Lord, would you come upon our trial-parched landscape and flood us with the nourishing wisdom of your word and your spirit. And Lord, we're confident. We ask confident. We don't want to be friends with the world and with you. We don't want to serve God and money. We want to be confident in you alone. So we wait and we listen and we trust. And Lord, for those in the room who might be a Sunday Christian, who've not decided which way, they're unstable, they're double-minded, they're tossed to and fro based on where they are and who they're with. They're friends with the world, but want to be friends with you as well. For those, would you burst in with the wisdom of salvation, the wisdom of repentance. Draw them afresh to you, Lord. For those in the room who've never even met you, I pray that you would call them to yourself this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.